This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing, and oftentimes that's doing some gut work with a meat based elimination diet. All right, guys, so I'm very excited. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Rob Wolf. For those of you that don't know him, Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and a two times New York Times bestseller. Now, I have personally written a book and I know how hard it is to get on there. So, for Rob Wolf to be on there two times, you can tell how good his books are. He has a book out called The Paleo Solution as well as Wired to Eat. I read his Wired to Eat and it was a great book. So, I highly recommend reading it. He also co authored a book recently with Diana Rogers. It was a book as well as a film. I think the film is out. I'm not 100% sure, but I watched a pre screening and it was really good. Um, but the sacred cow. So definitely watch that. It talks a lot about regenerative agriculture and the truths around meat and why meat is actually really good for you. Rob has really been a jack of all trades and I would honestly say a master of a lot as well.、Um, you know, he's opened one of the first CrossFit gyms, he's a brown belt in Jiu Jitsu. And I didn't even get to ask him about that for my kids, but next time.、Um, and he you know, has multiple podcast、uh, programs, and now he does a podcast with his wife. And, and more than anything, what really inspired me about him is that he's so down to earth, so real with all the kind of popularity and fame he has. And it was something that I felt was respectable. And,、um, and then we just got into some touchy subjects,、um, you know, like what. Is going on in the world? What does this all mean? We even talked about liver and vitamin A and just all of that stuff as well. So, we talk a lot about a lot of things.、Uh, I hope that this interview is helpful and it shows other sides to Rob than just about paleo and you know, what his real thoughts are on all things nutrition. And、um, yeah, just、uh, I guess some real talk. All right, let's get right into the interview. Hey guys, thanks for joining me again today. I am very excited. I have with me Rob Wolf. I'm sure most of you guys know who he is, but Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. If you can, you know, I've read 
your books. Um, I've read Wired to Eat before I even became a nutritional therapy practitioner, and I loved your content. I love as I follow you more, your podcast, you're very real and honest, and I love that. So if you can kind of just share who you are to the people um, that are watching and listening. Sure, sure. I'm almost 50 now. So my wandering old man um, description gets longer and longer. So just like pull out the big cane and yank me off the the stage if you need to. But uh, I was a a biochemist by training in my undergrad was looking at either medical school, a PhD program or possibly an MD PhD program. And this was around 1996, 1998. And I had a personal health crisis that I almost died from. I developed ulcerative colitis so bad that um, the immunosuppressant drugs weren't really working all that well. Um, surgery was kind of my main my main option. And I knew enough about uh, things like ulcerative colitis at that time that uh, the, the prospect of getting surgery at like 26, 28 years old was not super appealing. And, um, I knew that the, the kind of endpoints on that were pretty terrible. I'm about 165 pounds right now. I was about 125, 130 pounds when my, my ulcerative colitis was at its worst. I, I just could not absorb a thing. So if you imagine like 40 pounds less of me here, like it, it was pretty dire and, uh, you know, kind of a, a weird set of circumstances. My mother had suffered a host of interrelated um, gut and autoimmune conditions. We didn't know that that's really what they were at, at that for quite some time, but her rheumatologist ran some pretty comprehensive tests on her, determined that she was reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. And I just started kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together based off that because I, I very much had similar symptoms to what she had. And uh, kind of fast forward a, a little bit from there, I had this idea about something I had heard of, which was a paleo diet. And I have no idea where it had gotten into my consciousness. Uh, again, this was 1998. And so I went into my computer, turned it on, waited for it to boot up. Put, uh, turned on the dial up and waited for that. And then there was this new search engine called Google. And into Google, I put the term Paleolithic diet and I found a little bit of information. There wasn't a ton then, but a little bit. And what, what was there it made a really compelling case that um, some of these Neolithic foods might be problematic for some people. Clearly not everybody, but a lot of what they described were autoimmune and gut related problems. And so I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? And uh, uh, the closest thing that I could find that gave me a how-to guide in that area at that time was actually an Atkins book. So it was kind of a keto-ish, high-protein, low-carb, you know, uh, uh, approach. And that's kind of my first foray into ancestral eating. And it, it, it definitely saved my life and probably improved things you know, 90, 95%. And then the next 20 years, I've just been tweaking and fiddling and trying to, to, you know, get back that, that final five or, or 10% make a little, little progress here and there. Um, I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. So I was very early in the CrossFit scene. Um, that gave me this amazing opportunity to work with all kinds of different people from elite athletes, military personnel, but really my heart has always been in that, that person who has like multiple complex health issues. They've run the gauntlet of the standard medical scene 
the standard medical practice has nothing really to offer them. And those are my people like that. That has been the work that I've, I've mainly focused on over the last 20 years. That's amazing. Um, Your story with um, ulcerative colitis, how long after you removed some of the culprit foods, did you start seeing healing? A, A day. I mean, wow. a day. The, the The first thing was that I slept better. That one of the crazy things that happened, and, and I've got to say, at that time I was doing literally everything possible wrong. Um, I was eating a vegan diet, which for me is not a good fit. For somebody else, it may work beautifully. For me, it was an absolute disaster. I was living in Seattle. I had a basement apartment. Um, I left the house before the sun came up. I got home after the sun went down. So my circadian biology was horrible. I was sleeping maybe like four hours a night if I was lucky. So, I mean, so many different things were going on there. But this first meal that I had was actually like beef spare ribs that I baked in the oven and some fruit and a salad. And I ate that and it was like I had been ninja blow darted. Like I... I didn't even make it to bed. I fell asleep on the couch and I woke up like 12 hours later and I was like, oh my God, I feel way better, you know? And so, I mean, it was, I don't know if that shows how bad I was that like I got that immediate result or it shows that I still had a little bit of youthful vigor. I was able to, to get something out of it. But I mean, the, the results for me were just immediate, uh, literally within days I felt markedly better. And then within weeks and months, I, I regained weight, regained muscle mass. My physical and cognitive capacity really improved. So it was, it was immediate and dramatic for me. Wow, that's, that's pretty powerful because I do work with some clients and they're older um, and they have had colitis. Um, but you know, eating a meat-based diet, a ketogenic diet helps a lot and uh, helps mm-hmm. a lot with the bleeding and just being regular. But sometimes it takes a little bit more than just you know, a meal or two. So I'm sure youth was, um, you Played know, to my favor. Yeah. 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 And I'm sure also maybe it was like divine intervention where, you know, you were supposed to find that healing so that then you get the passion and kind of go from there. So whatever it is, it's great. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on is because I know, you know, like you said, you're kind of a, um, an expert in nutrition and you've been around since, the beginnings of paleo and you're one of the kind of front runners of that. And obviously there's been a lot of dietary changes through the time that you've kind of been in the space. So let's say like keto came and after, I guess even after paleo was autoimmune paleo and then keto and, you know, even like carnivore. Um, So for someone like me, who's a nutritional therapist within the kind of meat based uh, keto world, what would be your recommendations? I see so much, evolving, even in carnivore, Mm -hmm. I see people leave and go to maybe like a repeat diet. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and obviously no diet works for everyone, but you know, what are like your tips and advice and do you stay consistent? Like what are kind of, what's your thoughts on all of that? Man, that's a great question. Uh, I I am a fan of if it's not broken, don't fix it. And so I think that people can obsess over things. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm always a fan of experimentation. You know, yes. that said, I mean, uh, when I first saw carnivore pop up, so a little bit of background, um, I was supposed to give a talk at, a, a hospital in Chico, California. One of the cardiologists there was really geeked out on our, our work and, 
was putting all of his patients on this stuff and was getting amazing results. And I was supposed to give a talk at this hospital and then the nutrition and dietetics department in conjunction with the university nutrition and dietetics department got me banned. They were like, oh. no way you can let this guy talk here. He can't talk to patients. And there was some drama and some back and forth on that. And eventually what, what changed was that I was allowed to provide a presentation to the hospital staff. And it was, it was pretty well attended and seemed to be at least reasonably well uh, uh, received. But one of the doctors who attended had apparently posted a flyer in his office saying, this is the guy that recommends the all meat diet. And I was just so appalled and, and off put and everything. I'm, you know, I'm like, I eat lots of vegetables. And, and so for a good chunk of my career, I was kind of pushing back against this notion that this thing's an all meat diet. Now you fast forward and I, I'm the guy that coined the idea of the autoimmune paleo diet and, and I didn't fully flesh it out and develop it, but that, that's where I, I launched it in my, my first book. And it's had a modicum of success. Like I think it's helped people, but it's also um, shockingly difficult to implement. It, it, there's so many rules, so many unknowns. And I started seeing these folks that had not eaten any plant material in weeks, months, years, and in some cases, decades. Mm. And to, almost to a person, they had these like just unsolvable gut and autoimmune problems. And then they were fine. They adopted what we're now calling a carnivore or meat-based diet, and they were fine, like better than fine. They were thriving. And you would think that I would have a lot of like, intellectual property protection around like my, you know, my autoimmune paleo concept, but um, I'd been really underwhelmed with what it provided people. Like it was better for some people than the basic paleo intervention, but there seemed to be a group of people that if they just kind of went paleo, then some magic happened, you know, and lots of improvements occurred. And then there was this other group of people that they were kind of like, yeah, it's kind of better. Like it's definitely better than when I ate gluten. It's definitely better than when I ate like tons of carbs, but they were still not thriving, you know? And I saw these people that had these before and after stories, blood work, uh, uh, histology of their guts and everything. And it was clearly like shockingly improved. So over the course of time, this, this kind of peri carnivore approach carnivore-esque, I, I guess, in, in Paul Saladino terms, like it really impressed me. It kind of blew me away. And honestly, that's more the way that I've migrated my own eating over time. Like I've really narrowed down kind of a, unfortunately, a fairly narrow, you know, a list of plant material that I do well with. And I gauge that based off of kind of my digestion and, and just kind of physical symptoms but I feel way better. So I do think that that, that basic ancestral health template is such an amazing like starting place. Sure. And I think for most people, like if we were playing darts, it gets people like 85% to the bullseye. And then for a lot of people, you know, there, there's still some, some tweaking and shifting. And like you said, some people find uh, they, they go kind of repeat direction or something like that. And they seem to do better with it. I don't think they do better for all that long, but they at least transient, like there's some part of what they're doing in keto or carnivore or what have you that isn't working and that, that solves some of the problems for them. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I feel that 
some of the issues I guess I see is that people will try it for a month or two or mm-hmm. a few months and they're like, okay, it doesn't work. And then they just leave without trying different levers, whether it's fasting, whether it's different macros, you know, whether it's a kind of supplementation, electrolytes, all of those things. And then some people, it's just maybe they're getting the advice from online people that are not the right fit for them. And then they're like, it also doesn't work too. Cause just like you, I think the kind of meat-based diet as a baseline, I've seen so much healing. Now, the reason I even have a practice is because it doesn't work fully for some people. So you have to maybe change up macros, do some gut healing like you're talking about. But in general, I think it can help most people, right? And then you can Mm -hmm. add back certain foods like how you eat plants and stuff and totally fine. I just... um, I don't know, like, where is the balance of sometimes I feel like, and this is just being fully candid, like sometimes I feel like some of the influencers are just going where the wind blows. Do you know what I mean? It's like, do you really think it's not working? Or is it because everyone's kind of going to the next popular thing? Because on social media, it's like the next big thing will always have the most traffic, you know what I mean? So where do you see a balance? What do you see long term? Like, (laughs) what are your thoughts on that? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. I think that folks need to be really careful. And I was not as careful as I should have been early in my career. I have always wanted to help people. But in 2005, I published my first article on intermittent fasting. And it was in this uh, platform called the performance menu, which has shifted more mainly to Olympic weightlifting, still has some nutrition on it. But this went out mainly to a CrossFit oriented audience. And by 2006, I, I horribly regretted publishing this thing because these people who were willing to do CrossFit are so type A, so extreme that I started getting reports. And this was male and female both, but they were like, my hair's falling out. I haven't had a libido in eight months. And, you know, like this, I'm cold and, you know, all these problems. And then I would ask them, I'm like, okay, so what's your training like? Uh, six days a week of CrossFit, one day off where I do hot yoga and a hike and, and, Uh, okay, that's a disaster, but okay, what about your food? Well, I intermittent fast 22 hours a day. I do a three-day fast once a week and I I ate five grams of carbs last month, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, you know? And, And this was even way before the electrolyte need was on my radar at all. Like I wasn't afraid of salt, but I didn't appreciate how critical sodium intake was to dealing with this like naturesis of fasting. So Um, I'm one of these folks that was really early in the fasting gig could have probably had a much larger expansive career had I really jumped in and adopted that and, you know, just drove that message home. But it was like a coin toss. It was a 50, 50 coin toss. Like some people seem to benefit like some time restricted eating. I eat breakfast at nine I make dinner at four. It's like, yeah, that's great. But, um, I I see people, and this is going to sound terrible, but it's hard to tell if they're a raw vegan or not because it's like dark circles under their eyes. They have no muscle mass. 
they look like if they, they were driving on an icy road and their car slid off an embankment, they wouldn't be able to crawl up the, the road and like save themselves. You know, I mean, they were not robust individuals and they're in this like a uh, uh, protein phobic keto camp where they're eating 40 grams of protein a day and, 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 you know, and the fasting and, you know, terrified of mTOR and insulin like growth factor and all this other stuff. So I, I think it's important to really pay attention to that empirical piece to this and look at everything as a tool. Fasting is a tool and there's all these different iterations of it. There are some people that protein restriction is appropriate. There are folks that have some uh, polymorphisms genetically where they really don't do well with the ammonia accumulation that occurs from a higher protein diet. Okay, we're, we're going to figure out ways. And one thing you can, you can supplement with some ammonia scavenging supplements, but also a little bit lighter on protein might be better, but almost to a person, I just find that there's almost not a top l- limit to protein intake and getting additional health benefit. You know, I mean, it's really hard to, to reach that point. So I'm very much in contrast to say like the current fasting craze where I think people are doing way too much, far too often. Uh, They should be asking themselves instead of, should I add an additional day per week of fasting? They absolutely should be adding an additional day per week of resistance training Mm -hmm. and getting sun on their skin and learning a new language. And, you know, there's like all this other stuff that I think has such a higher likelihood of reward and a low likelihood of downside. So I I do agree, like folks really do kind of... um, play to the the popularity wins and we're always looking it's always great when you you have possibly a new insight on something um i've a good friend of mine jorge cruz has he's produced all kinds of material and he's developed kind of a keto two two meals a day program which i think is great a little bit of intermittent fasting and he calls it the zero hunger program and it's like, oh, this is brilliant. Your main goal is to eat so that you're eat and live in a way that you're not hungry. Right. So he's weaving in the neuroregulation of appetite. He's weaving in a little bit of calorie control via some fasting and, and ketosis and everything. And he put a fresh coat of paint on it. It's all kind of the same stuff, but he couches it in a way that, oh, this really makes sense. But it's very evidence-based and it's very outcome-based. Like, like it, it, it makes a lot of sense and he gets really good results for the folks that he works with. So- I, you know, social media is awesome in that we have all this access to each other. It's also challenging. Like, how does your voice, you know, make it out to the, the you know, the masses? And unfortunately, like over the top ridiculous stuff just impresses the pants off people or the algorithms select for it, you know? And, and so that's a tough that's a tough nut to crack. Like, I don't know what the, the real answer is on, on that, but I, I, I will say that if you've got any type of kind of a, a moral compass, I, I think that we really ask the question, like, am I really doing no harm here first? Like, it, sure. or if there is some potential downside when we convey this stuff to the folks that we work with, or, you know, we're writing blogs or whatever, hey, here are some things to keep aware of. And if you notice that you're cold and have low libido and, you know, that, that, that you've got this list of stuff, this may not be right for you. And here's some other alternatives. And this is a great opportunity to just have awesome relationships with people in this space. So, you know, 
specialization, I think, is important because it allows you to be kind of a, a world-leading expert. Like clearly you have have carved out this, this area within the meat-based you know, scene and kind of autoimmune and gut-related stuff. And so you're really able to shine there. But if somebody doesn't quite get served by exactly what you're doing, instead of you trying to be all things to all people, you probably refer them out. You're like, hey, I've got this good friend who does this or this good friend who does this. So I think that that's a really honest, credible way to, to handle all that stuff. And, uh, but it's not easy. You know, it's, a, it's an ever-evolving calculus problem trying to deal with all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you touched on so many good points. Um, you know, one, I think that um, specializing, like you said, is important so that you can kind of support and get more expertise in a certain area. And I think that's really important. But I've also learned just, you know, from writing a book and it's just learning to be flexible because science mm-hmm. always changes. Um, there's beliefs that I have that already have changed from the book I've written. And so you know, and I think in terms of fasting, I think in general, like we're talking about, it's very individual. I think one of the issues I see in the whole keto, paleo, carnivore space is that a lot of people, the desire, especially for women, I guess, um, would be the desire to be thin. Mm-hmm. And so then people take it to a whole new level. And then after you extend it fast, most people don't want to eat the amounts they were eating or eating the en- enough. So refeeding properly. And so then they don't refeed properly. And then their metabolism starts dropping and then the hormones get affected because, you know, and so um, that's where I think, you know, the, um, I guess, educating properly is ideal, but um, yeah. So I think it really depends on the way you're doing fasting. If you do it right, it's okay. Like personally for me, because I come from an eating disorder, I don't really fast. I do, you know, two meals a day, but I don't really consider that fasting, Um, Mm -hmm. but I'll do like an autophagy type of extended fast, maybe once a year, like a few days just to clean up old cells. But in general, otherwise I don't do that. And I don't even advocate for that in my practice. I first try to focus on healing. Um, But I I think a lot of what you said makes sense. I think that, you know, just being flexible and open to a, I guess a variety of thought is critical, but I also see what trends on social media is always like the drama or, you know, it's like, um, I guess, anger or emotion, it sells. And so that's where the algorithms will say, oh, for some reason, this thing or this post is doing well, so we should share it with everybody. But that's not always completely ethical, in my opinion. Well, and and as a, a, for the individual doing that, they are painting themselves into a corner also, because then it becomes an arms race. It's like, okay, you were angry and over the top five out of 10. And then you start losing ground against the person who's angry and over the top, who's a six out of 10. So now you need to go to a seven out of 10 to regain, you know, this, this market share. And it's just a horrible arms race. This is a, a big part of why I have social media accounts but I write up some material, I send it to my assistant, it gets posted and I do absolutely no curation of content or, or answering of, of questions anymore because it's so, it's so toxic and I just mm-hmm. don't want to play that game and it's tough. Like, I don't know, it may end up being career suicide and I may find myself working in a lab again at some point, but there's just been some, some lines that I wanted to, to draw on that. But I, it is something that I've noticed and, and I've talked to people who've gone a little bit more that over the top thing. Um, 
they realize that they've created a monster and they don't entirely know how to get out of it. Whereas I feel pretty comfortable with what I'm doing. I don't have all the answers by any means, but I've got a, I have a pretty solid template now. Like I, 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 I feel pretty confident I can help most people. And if I feel like their needs are outside the scope of what I understand, then I have a, a good you know list of folks that I can refer them to. And I feel I, I can sleep at night with that. Like I don't have the anxiety of like, Oh, am I losing market share because I need to do another shirtless selfie or, you know, what, whatever the, the deal is. And I, I just wanted to throw something out really quickly about that customization story that maybe makes it more real for folks. When we consider the half-life of caffeine, like when people consume caffeine, there, there's this in toxicology, a, a thing called half-life. Like if you consume a hundred milligrams how long does it take for you to be at 50 milligrams in your system? And then how long before you have 25 milligrams? The average for humans is eight hours, but some people clear it in four hours. Some people clear it in 36 hours. And so a cup of coffee is an entirely different experience for the four hour person versus the 36 hour person. And I don't know how many um, physiological processes have a, a, a delta that big, like that much variation from person to person. Not everything's going to be like that, but a hell of a lot of things are. And so when somebody says, hey, I don't think this thing's working for me, then I, I think we we do need to have a little little you know honor to that. But but again to your point, folks oftentimes need to give things more than a month to, you know, kick tires on it before just wholesale jumping to a to another topic. So you know, on that thought process of the caffeine, if you know that, and that's funny because I actually did research on that. So I know that pregnant women, for example, it takes them longer to absorb mm-hmm. the caffeine. And then for smokers, it goes through them really quickly. So it's funny that you right. brought that up. But so knowing that, I mean, do you think like knowing that there's all these nuances in nutrition and that, you know, you, you talk to someone that's like the oxalate specialist, or it's like the lectin specialist, or it's the the liver special, you know, there's always like something that someone's trying to grab onto. But if we know that there's all these new uh, nuances in nutrition, our medical history, um, you know, all these, the Delta that you talked about, is there really kind of a baseline of food that you think is ideal for a diet? I do. And I think it's very protein centric. Like, I think that's a great place to start folks and the, you know, animal based, uh, preferably, um, I like the the lower bound to be a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass, all the way up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight, and 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 it doesn't necessarily need to be a ceiling, but that's a that's a great boundary I think for most folks to exist in. And as part of our Healthy Rebellion Network, uh, we do three resets a year. People get together, we walk walk them through a nutrition, movement, uh, uh, sleep, and um, kind of community-based reset. And we have folks that have been following my work for 10 plus years, and they never are eating enough protein. I mean, never. It, it, it just, it, I'm still struggling to lose this weight, or I still have these sleep issues, and and we, we get them to weigh and measure their food for a couple of days, and they're 25 to 50% under eating protein and they're just blown away. And so I think start with those solid, super nutrient dense, easy to digest animal based foods. Um, Then do a little bit of tinkering. Like, do you do better, more fat fueled, a little more keto? Do you do okay with some, some carbs? And, and so figure out your glycemic tolerance and the, you know, we can, 
find that out reasonably easy. And then I think most of what like the paleo diet concept could be boiled down to is just be aware that there are immunogenic foods, uh, wheat, corn, dairy, some of the nightshades like the, you know, and it kind of goes down the, I think it gets less and less applicable, but uh, even the oxalate story like that is an immunogenic problem. And I think a normal pre-industrial human gut oxalate should be no issue, but they have the bacteria that break down oxalates. We by and large do not have that anymore. So like eating spinach by the pound or almonds by the bushel may end up being a real significant problem for some folks. And so maybe you can soak it and sprout it. Maybe you, you do some spinach, but you put some balsamic vinegar on it. So it precipitates out the, you know, bonds to the the calcium oxalate and it kind of makes that less of an issue. Um, So we can do some mitigating strategies, but I think look at the protein, figure out if you run better on fat or carbs or some sort of middle ground combination, and then start thinking about immunogenic foods. And I I think that that's a, um, a really solid place to start, you know, tinkering with things. And generally we also tend to see decreasing, um, return on investment with that, you know, unless the person is like celiac or super gluten intolerant, then like removal of gluten is the most important thing. It's that immunogenic food thing per first, but generally if you're really focusing on good quality animal proteins, like your gluten intake tends to drop precipitously anyway. And then if you notice that you don't do great with carbs and you know, it tends to decrease. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I see in the carnivore space is that people will, you know, here just eat as much protein until you get off the carbs. And then some of the clients that I get will eat, like, they're probably eating for sure over like the one gram per one pound of lean body mass. But sometimes there's a cap, right? So then if they start eating a lot, then it becomes like gluconeogenesis, like, Mm -hmm. and all of that, and then their blood sugar starts going up. And so the average carnivore, their blood sugar is higher than like the average keto person. And then sometimes it's like, hundred in the morning, which is technically pre-diabetic. And so people start getting concerned. Have you seen that at all? Do you have concerns of that? Yeah. And you know, I'm really not um, concerned about either the supply or the demand issues of uh, gluconeogenesis from a, a high protein diet. And that that where we start triangulating in on that, it, you know, if we see an elevated fasting blood glucose level, um, I'll look at an A1C and then see if that looks elevated. And it, 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 and even in that situation, A1C isn't a perfect, because if A1C is elevated and blood glucose is elevated, then we're seeing it elevated both in the moment and over time. Months, so right. we can start finding something there. But that's not always totally informative because people who eat a low-carb diet, their red blood cells live significantly longer. And if they live longer, they can accumulate. The the test is standardized to an average of red blood cells living like 90 days or 120 days. I, I forget which one it is. But if you're doubling or tripling the lifespan of those red blood cells, then that can be a problem. So then you can use another marker called fructosamine. And if fructosamine is low but A1C and blood glucose are kind of high, then we know that we're, we're probably okay, that we're seeing some, a couple of different artifacts in there. Um, I also really like the LPIR score, the lipoprotein insulin resistance score. And my friends who run the uh, Precision Health Reports 
a, a website. They offer a really comprehensive cardiometabolic risk panel that looks at the LPIR score and gives you all this deep insight into both your cardiovascular disease risk, but also your diabetes risk. And that's another way to really get a, a sense of what's going on there. And then, you, you know, I guess the last thought on that, um, I, I'm not as concerned about food. Like if people feel good, have good performance, they don't get vision changes like they're used to having when they were eating more carb-rich diet and whatnot. And their blood glucose runs a little bit higher than what we would see in like a, a keto um, population. I'm really not concerned about that. And again, we can use some of the, the blood testing like the A1C and the fructosamine and whatnot to kind of zero in on like, okay, are we really overdoing this? Um, but it also may be something that folks need to do for some period of time to just kind of establish the habits of not going down the, you know, the path of the refined carbohydrate and really establish a new baseline. And then maybe we start peeling some of the protein back or what have you, if that's a problem. But I, I think it's hard to do. I think it's hard to get yourself in a bad spot with that. Have you seen, um, in all your clientele's, um, like anyone that has, I guess the pre-diabetic numbers that were meat based, but then all their other markers that you're saying to look at, they look pretty healthy, even though maybe their, you know, morning glucose is low hundreds, maybe their A1C is like 5.6 or above, um, just a little bit above that. And then, but then maybe their insulin markers or their, um, I don't know, their CRP or whatever other markers you check look Mm -hmm. okay. So then you're not as concerned. Yeah, we, we have, and you know, not infrequently, those folks also end up with sleep problems. Like they, they also have some sleep dysregulation and then that's a whole other rabbit track to go down. And just as an aside, what, what I've been doing probably the last couple of years is um, putting a, a dietarily agnostic idea forward. It's like, oh, I don't know how we're going to eat. What we're going to do is optimize your sleep. Sure. And oh, okay. so then, the, you know, and, and when people start sleeping better, they really start feeling better. It's like, man, when you eat that, that giant bowl of rice before bed, your sleep sucks. Like we'll use something like an HRV platform or something like that to, to track things or just kind of like, how did you feel waking up today? And oh, I was puffy and inflamed and, and whatnot. So it could be really objective or subjective. But um, when you use sleep as like this anchor, then it's kind of like, well, your body doesn't like carbs. So we got to do something else, you know, and, and, oh, when you eat a really protein rich meal, then you, you sleep well and whatnot. So um, again, to circle back to your question though, when I've seen folks like that, they've oftentimes been shift workers, uh, police, military, fire, new parents, a really stressful job. So oftentimes like their allostatic load, their total stress load is enough to push that blood glucose level higher. And then in that case, it, it's kind of a question of, well, do you dial the protein back to try to get a more like keto to, to try to deal with that? Or, you know, is the main lever to go after trying to modify the, the sleep quality, trying to get them into bed earlier, um, maybe doing a little bit of magnesium or, or melatonin, you know, somewhere around that pre-bedtime period to, to improve that, that sleep quality or whatnot. But I would say most of the folks, when we keep digging, uh, if they have these additional challenges, they have some sort of disordered sleep. Like their sleep is not as squared away as what I would like. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because a lot of my clients with any markers like that, their sleep for sure is dysregulated and they often say, it's because I need to go to the bathroom. And I always say, no, that's mm-hmm. not the reason you're waking up. It's usually a cortisol spike. And then the people that have the CGMs, they see it. So it completely makes sense. Um, you know, shifting topics a little bit, we um, have been seeing a lot in the meat-based communities where women need uh, carbs for hormone health, um, you know, from all your experience in nutrition, like what are your thoughts on that? Um, women definitely respond faster and more profoundly to dietary restriction, like without a doubt. And I, I think that fasting can be dodgy in that regard. Um, uh, but I, I think a lot of this boils down to, uh, these women are frequently not getting enough protein. They may be, you know, driving the fasting window a little bit too, too hard. And also I got to say, I think that the sodium and electrolyte intake is a massive factor in this. Before I started hanging out with the founders of Keto Gains, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, I was much more circumspect about, you know, the appropriateness of a ketogenic or low carb diet in general for, for women, particularly like that perimenopausal window and all that type of stuff. And their whole client, they work with thousands of people and it's 85% women between the ages of like 40 and 65. And they are not like hair falling out, amenorrheic and all this stuff. And I was like, well, what are you guys doing? And they're like, we, we, by hook or by crook, we make sure they get adequate protein. And they were the ones that put the whole sodium and electrolyte story on my, my radar. And when you look at what adequate sodium does, it really tamps down that glucocorticoid response um, from a low-carb diet. And, and so everything that we see as being kind of like adrenal fatigue or thyroid dysregulation, you could make the argument that it's kind of cortisol-driven. And some people do, like folks in the evidence-based nutrition, Alan Aragon, Lane Norton, folks like that, will make the case that a low carb can really spin that, that kind of cortisol axis. And it does, but we don't see hardly any of that type of stuff. If you were put on a medically supervised ketogenic diet, if you go to a a dietitian who, you know, hospital setting, you're being put on an epilepsy based uh, ketogenic diet, which may be too low protein, but you know, we can quibble about that. The one thing that they make certain that you get is adequate sodium. You get at least five grams of sodium per day, if not more. And somewhere along the line, that sodium and electrolyte story, like everybody's super focused on protein, carbs, fat, and ketone levels and the, the, uh, you know, the, uh, biochemistry of, of fat metabolism. Like that was me. I, I geeked out on all that stuff. And then I was just blindingly ignorant of the, the need for electrolytes. So I, keto and carnivore and all that is not appropriate for every person, but I've gotten way more suspicious about somebody saying, well, this thing just didn't work for me. And it's like, well, were you really, did you really get enough protein? Did you, and and it's always within context, you know, it's like, well, why are you doing carnivore? Like, do you have gut issues? Do you have autoimmune issues to it? You know, um, some people have crushing depression that like these, these ways of eating are kind of like the way of, of dealing with stuff. And so then in that context, we have to really think about like, are you getting enough electrolytes? And if, if we really, it's funny, it's kind of like, are you getting enough protein? Yes or no, you know? And it's like, most of the time it's no. And then we address that. And then it's like, are you getting enough electrolytes? It's specifically sodium. Yes or no. 
virtually 100% no. And once we address that, I don't know, 95, 99% of the problems are, are largely addressed at that point. So I, I can this carnivore intervention be a problem? Yes. Was carnivore the main cause? Well, it created a situation where our sodium needs were probably greater. Um, sure. Our protein needs are arguably greater also. Like if, uh, if we're not eating carbs, we really do benefit from a little bit more protein just for that gluconeogenic uh, situation. And interestingly, also, people forget that protein does release insulin. And this is one of the reasons why I think that people that eat adequate protein don't have long-term problems mm-hmm. is that they are ringing that insulin bell every once in a while, just a little bit. Uh, I remember when Peter Atia was doing his um, uh, really very rigorous ketogenic diet intervention, he was doing that classic four to one um, fat to protein ketogenic diet. And he had like an unmeasurable insulin response. Like it was non, non measurable. And it was like two years in and he's like, I think that that may be a problem. And so as fearful as people are about insulin, it does play a role. Like, you know, we don't want none. We don't want too much. We would like maybe some transient activity on it. And I wouldn't, this is, theory on my part, and I wouldn't even know how to go about kind of proving this, but I wouldn't be surprised if the adequate protein causes enough of an insulin response that it's actually beneficial for people, you know, and and then we're not ending up with that hypoglycemic event, like like what we tend to get from eating a a more dense carb source. That makes a lot of sense. Um, The clients I work with, it's funny because all the things you're touching, I touch. Um, so like one of the things is I consider people healing when they could sleep through the night. And so mm-hmm. we first dial into the macros and most often than not, um, there's some men that definitely overeat protein um, and they can maybe do some fat. Maybe they don't, but I feel like for gut healing, it can help. Um, but then there's the women that for most women, they are totally under eating and they're like, but I'm going by my hunger cues and I'm not really hungry. And it's like, that's the right. problem. You're eating less than a pound of meat and you only eat meat. Right. So, um, but then as we work on that, then the next thing I focus on is minerals. And that's why I was asking you, you know, you've been in nutrition for such a long time and like, why all of a sudden are you getting into electrolytes? I know for me, that's kind of the way that I found that if you're really stressed, you even need sodium more. I totally mm-hmm. agree with the quarter quarter coids and how that even affects blood pressure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, is that how you got into LMNT and getting into electrolytes? Yeah. I mean, I had struggled for ages to fuel my more glycolytic activity. Uh, I don't really do anything cro- that looks like CrossFit anymore, but I still do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And like, if right. I really wanted that like low gear, um, I just didn't have it. You know, I, I could lift weights pretty reasonably. I could do cardio, low, low, low intensity cardio, but that middle ground of like a glycolytic engine, like it just wasn't there. And if I got pushed into it, it would really blow me out. Like I, I just felt absolutely um, tapped out. And I, I forget what year I met Tyler and Luis. Like I really started hanging out with them. It might've been 2016, might've even been a little bit, gosh, I guess it was, no, it was before that might've been 2014 or even earlier, but I was just so impressed with the work that they were doing and, and very level-headed, very balanced and really impressed with the results that they were getting. So I started kind of hanging out with them and um, 
roped him into looking at what I was doing. I'm like, hey, I have this problem with jujitsu. Can you look at what I'm doing? They looked at it and they're like, you're pretty good, but you're not getting enough sodium. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, no, no, I salt my food. I'm good, you know, because what do you do when you have a world expert on something in front of you? You ignore what they tell you, of course, (laughs) you know. And so I motored along for a good year, just still struggling. And then I would, you know, bemoan my situation. They're like, no, man, really, you need more sodium. Here, why don't you do this? Put all your food into chronometer and it will break down your macros, but it'll also tell us your sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium. I did it and I was getting less than half the sodium that they recommended that I should get. I was was getting almost none, you know? And when I fixed that, it was literally like a light switch was flipped and it, it shouldn't be surprising because outside of pH, the most tightly regulated process we have in our body is electrolytes. Like if, if you end up in the emergency room, the two things that they look at kind of first is like pH levels and electrolytes, because if those go squirrely, you'll die, you know, I mean, you, you, and you'll die quickly. And, um, and the sodium potassium pumps are involved in literally every energetic process in the body. That's how we make ATP like that. Every thought we have, every muscle contraction we, we create is a consequence of sodium potassium pumps working. So if that's off, clearly that's going to have an effect on everything else you're doing. So I was super excited about it. I'm like, oh my God, guys, sodium's important. They're like, yeah, you're an idiot. We know this. We've known this for like a decade, but um, we did a, uh, a, a downloadable guide that was how to make your own, we called it keto aid. And it was, you know, use this much table salt, this much no salt, which is potassium chloride, this much uh, magnesium citrate, put some lemon juice in it, sweeten it with stevia off and going. And it, it was maybe six months, eight months later that we had a half million downloads of this thing. And I was like, holy smokes. And we started seeing all these people that were like, I had all these problems. I had a bunch of problems that were resolved by eating low carb, but then I had these other problems concurrent to the low carb and this fixed it. And then we also started having people tagging us on social media where they're like, Hey, I was going through TSA and they didn't like my three bags of white powder I had, you know, and, and maybe you guys should do some sort of a, a drink mix on this stuff. And so we, 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 uh, 10 years ago, I didn't have a, a moment's thought that I was going to be like a, a salt mogul or, or anything like that, you know, but it, it was cool the way that we were able to back into this. Like I saw the benefit for myself. Mm-hmm. I shared this out with my community and it, it clearly ended up addressing a bunch of needs there. And then we spun up the element as a, as a, a product off of that because it, it really seemed to help people. And I mean, the, the only, this is another funny thing about online stuff. Like particularly if you have a supplement, it's like people will tell you, Oh, our salt is this magical salt with magical minerals in it and everything is like the only thing magic about element is it's convenient and it tastes pretty damn good. You know, like that's, that's it. And we still offer the downloadable guide for people to make it themselves. And, and nine times out of 10 people are like, okay, this is just enough of a pain in the ass that I'm just going to go ahead and buy the, the element itself. But I mean, that's, that's the whole story around, 
what we did with that, and it's been interesting, we've had a number of kind of medically related uh, groups, uh, the POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome mm-hmm. folks. It's a situation where people go from seated to standing and they lose blood volume and they can pass out. Right. It's got kind of an autoimmune underpinning to it. They just went like wildfire when we, we put this thing out. And uh, breastfeeding moms, ironically, um, we started getting tagged in these breastfeeding mom forums where they were like, this is what I pumped yesterday. And it's, it's like this tiny little bit in one bottle. Like I took this thing and this is what I pumped today. And it's like four full bottles, you know? And when you look at the physiology on that, just drinking water doesn't necessarily increase blood volume. You have to have a balance of electrolytes to allow the blood volume to increase. And in, in a way it can almost dehydrate you because if you consume a ton of water, your body's going to excrete potassium and then by extension sodium, and you end up in a worse situation. So, um, it, and also the sodium suppresses cortisol to some degree. And so cortisol is horrible for breast milk production. So we ended up having a, a bunch of different little subgroups that are kind of medically related that really love this stuff and love the fact that um, a really convenient stick pack thing, you know, ended up addressing a bunch of their needs. So, I mean, that, that's kind of the long, long and short of the element story. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense just because I ran into so many carnivores that had mineral imbalances. I might even check with the hair tissue mineral test, but sometimes it's just a little bit of Soleil water that helps. Sometimes people need to supplement a little bit extra potassium and Soleil water is just, you know, salt water overnight. Um, but when people are on the go, I'll say, yeah, if you want to use a little bit of LMNT and it's very common that people will just kind of take it to go, like you said, it's more convenient, um, especially when someone's out all day. And so that helps a lot. But one of the things I saw is that some of the kind of nose to tail community, um, they don't use a lot of the electrolytes. And I always wondered, mm-hmm. and then they'll just get the carbs. And I just think, well, that's a Band-Aid because obviously carbs retain more water and therefore right. you'll retain more electrolytes, but that's a pure Band-Aid because you were that much closer to possibly realizing maybe I have an electrolyte imbalance. And if I were to just take some sodium or elementary or Soleil water, whatever it is, then maybe I would have balanced and had that kind of exercise ability like you were talking about instead of needing the carbs, the fructose to do the balancing. Yeah, I I don't know. I guess um I mean clearly I would be motivated to, you know, paint element as favorably as I can, but if the person's motoring along well, if they look feel perform well, their biomarkers look good and they're doing say like that high honey or high fruit intake with carnivore, that's just paleo that's they're mainly eating fruit, you know, and and it will modify their total electrolyte needs. And so I think that my opinion, they've probably found the right spot for them under those circumstances. Now, if they're experiencing blood glucose dysregulation, if they're seeing signs of like non-alcoholic fatty liver because they're crushing tons of fructose and whatnot, okay, we've got a problem, you know, and, and you know, we need to circle this thing back around. And also if, um, even in those populations, if people work out in a really hot, humid environment and stuff like that, like, they're going to need more, more electrolytes. Like even the American council of sports medicine, and this is for like carb eating athletes. These are people eating six, 700 grams of carbs a day. They are not carb deficient, 
But the American Council of Sports Medicine recognizes that folks training in hot or humid environments, they may need seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. And this is from the ACSM saying this, you know, so I think that folks do themselves a bit of a disservice by like creating these really rigid, you know, lines in the sand or kind of old quasi religious doctrine around this stuff. It's like, if you feel great and you're crushing it, awesome. But if you, you know, like if you're lethargic, you're getting some muscle cramps, um, uh, you don't feel like you have a super high heart rate while training, you have a high heart rate when trying to go to bed, God, take a little salt and see. And it, it, it you know, it could be pickle juice. It could be uh, chicken bouillon cubes. Like we, we, we just want people to get adequate sodium and electrolytes in general, because it ends up addressing so many of these problems. Yeah, that, it makes a lot of sense. Um, shifting topics a little bit, um, I know that you were talking in, um, I think it was a podcast, and you mentioned that it's really important to just have these kinds of discussions, right? You're not really in the carnivore space, even though you eat meat-based, but um, you know we have these discussions, even if we're not always in line with every single point of our diet. Um, and you talked about how it's really bad to censor. And obviously, there's a lot of censorship going on from mainstream even. So what's your thoughts of like, what's the harm with um, censor- censorship, even um, in science, even if the science isn't that good, but like, what is the harm with that? Uh, uh, learning stops, like literally learning stops. It, it, it's done. Um, once you you know, anoint somebody as the sole arbiter of truth, that's it. Like that is the end of the the road with, with scientific development. Like you, because um, God, there was just something the other day that would, and I, I only just found it, but this paper was published in 2003 or 2013, I forget, but it, it was talking about what are the actual wavelengths of UV light that produce vitamin D in humans. And there had been this accepted bandwidth of, you know, this to this uh, nanometer. And what this paper did is went through and looked at the, uh, the, the uh, biophysics and actually some, some case reports and the, the spectrum is wider. And it didn't change the fact that vitamin D produces or, or vitamin D can be produced in human skin from, you know, a, a UV radiation. But what it told us is that um, people at Northern latitudes can get vitamin D at different times of the year when we thought that they, they couldn't. People with darker skin can get vitamin D at, you know, with higher latitudes. So it didn't change everything, but it's an important addition to this whole story. And if we had just halted, it's like, we will not discuss vitamin D uh, production as it relates to UV radiation anymore. And it seems ridiculous because it seems like a non-controversial topic, but what, I don't know if you curse on this thing. I'm going to curse really quickly. What if <laughs> topic isn't controversial these days? Like everybody just gets their, their britches in a bunch about everything. And uh, you know, right before some really hardcore censorship of low carb diets really started happening on Google and Facebook. It was maybe three months prior to that, the Bernstein diabetes intervention for type one diabetes had, had just been a study wrapped up at Harvard. And it, it, the Bernstein's intervention is a high protein, moderate fat, low carb diet. And it works like nothing that anybody has ever seen. 
The goal is not specifically ketosis, and there's a variety of reasons for that, but it is absolutely very low carb. And um, the the researchers, and again, this was a Harvard, you know, funded uh, research. The the folks who wrote this up said this provided unparalleled blood glucose control never before seen in the realm of type one diabetes. And this came about because a group type one grit had been able to talk about this stuff. And my God, the controversy that emerges when you suggest that a low carb diet could be an appropriate intervention for type two diabetes to say nothing of type one diabetes, people lose their minds. But this thing is really potentially changing the world. And it, 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 there's going to be so much work to be done to undo the terrible recommendations that endocrinologists and general practitioners make around this stuff. But it's, it's there. It's a crack in the door. The, the wedge has been jammed in. That door isn't going to shut. But right on the heels of that thing being released, the type 1 grit community started getting censored. Low-carb individuals started getting censored. So these are topics that if we do not allow the free exchange of ideas, it will end. What we understand today will be the, the end of our understanding of the world. Or hopefully our, our tech oligarchs you know, hire some 24-year-old pimple-faced kid who's an amazing engineer, but I don't think that they know a, a damn thing about you know, human physiology or, or low-carb diets or what have you. And uh, I mean, not to politicize this, but just uh, this morning, Facebook walked back its censorship of posting about the lab leak hypothesis as it relates to COVID. This has been a career ending topic potentially for some people. People have been deplatformed for just suggesting that COVID may have originated from a lab and they would make their case here and other people have made their case. No, it's a natural origin thing here. And that's what science should do. Then we start you know, dueling these things at each other and it's messy and there are idiots on the internet that make all kinds of specious claims. And that's our job to provide good information so that the science wins. But the process is arguably the more important thing, the ability to talk and discuss. And the people that I've seen that embrace this censorship mentality, like, well, some things just need to be controlled and censored. And man, I, I strongly disagree on that. Like I, I, um, if you're not advocating for directly hurting people or, you know, we could get in debate what, you know, what needs to be mediated and stuff like that. But, um, but I tell you what it, you, you start constructing a tinfoil hat pretty quickly when you look at the things that are really getting hammered, um, regenerative agriculture, people talking about the, the notion that, um, cows are not actually the primary cause of, of climate change, that they may actually be a solution to it. And then this low carb scene, what is that a solution to? It is a solution to everything that's broken in the industrial food system, literally everything. And then you sound like a crazy person for suggesting that, but you know, uh, uh, I think it was, um, six years ago, and I always forget which direction this went, but there was an exchange of around $650 million between Google and GlaxoSmithKline. Either Google paid that into GlaxoSmithKline or vice versa. I forget. But basically, uh, Forbes did a piece suggesting, oh, you, you really should consider Google a pharmaceutical company now. And I don't 
uniformly, I, I'm not so crazy that I'm like, oh, our, all pharmaceutical companies are evil, but um, they're certainly not 100% benevolent and, and solely focused on our, our, you know, betterment and good outcomes. Because it, again, like if we got the bulk of the population to just eat a largely whole unprocessed diet that had adequate protein. It doesn't need to be keto. Doesn't need to be car. God, 99% of our health problems would be solved. You know, we would be so rich as, as a society that like all these other difficult to solve, like genetic problems and everything, we would just be flush with money and resources to go after all this other stuff because cardiovascular disease would be gone. Diabetes would be gone. Neurodegenerative disease would be gone. People would live a long, healthy, productive life and then die over the period of two weeks the way that, that people do in, in less developed countries, you know? So I know I'm just jabbering no, like a madman I mean, here, but yeah. no, I, I'm on the same page. Um, it's crazy. But when my book first came out, they let me advertise. I don't know if the censorship was less, but that was like six months ago. And then we try to advertise just an, you know, Amazon ban- a banner on like other books that would have, and they said, you cannot advertise because you're, wor- there's cure in the book and it's oh, misinformation. Right. And so they said, sorry. We- and so we're not allowed to advertise. And it's again, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate. And then we just recently heard that on Facebook, they banned Weston A. Price, the foundation. Right. Right. And it's, you know, it's just, um, it's happening so much now. Um, and it's just kind of scary. And I, and I agree with you. I think it's important to have discussion. I mean, I shared about possibly getting vitamin A toxicity not too long ago with eating excess liver. People weren't happy about it, but there were some people that actually have been feeling better from not eating liver every single day of right. life. And there are some people that eat like half a pound of liver every day. And you have to wonder, sometimes excess can be too much. Holy smokes. I yeah. mean, the iron overload potential, the vitamin A potential, there's chromium, yeah. copper. There's yeah. a lot. There's a lot. Um, there's B1 deficiency if you're only eating beef, but some people say that's not to worry, but I highly argue that um, it's yes, it's but I think that's important, right? You have to have this. And I think it's kind of scary because whether you are afraid of getting censored, whether it's, uh, you know, causing drama online, but I mean, I do the same thing as you. So I don't kind of stay online anymore because I'll, I'll serve the community, but I'm not going to stay. And especially since it's kind of volatile more than ever with mm-hmm. the pandemic being around, but you know, um, I think truth wins. And um, I think, yeah, it makes sense to share science. Um, one thing I know is that, when um, you guys came out with the Sacred Cow movie, uh, I think you mentioned that, you know, obviously for the regenerative agriculture, it's really good to um, have grass-fed cows, just have the natural kind of cycle. Um, But in terms of nutrition, you guys said it wasn't that different from Mm grain-fed. And then I heard that you guys got kind of some backlash for that. So why do you think people get mad at that? Or, you know, some of the meat, producers. And I mean, I, I, I'm guilty in this, like for a long time, I, I said that there was a, a significant uh, delta between pastured and, and conventional meat. And I was wrong. I wasn't really looking it, it, unless something gets updated. Uh, you know, I, what I was really focusing on is this difference between the omega-3, omega-6, you know, ratio within uh, pastured versus not pastured meat. And, um, it does have a pasture meat does have more omega threes, but you need to eat 
eight pounds of beef to get as much omega-3s as what you get out of like a three ounce piece of salmon. Like it's just ridiculous. And beef can be marbled. It can have fat, but it's really not that high in fat generally. Whereas like dairy products are higher as a percentage of fats and pasture dairy is shockingly more nutritious than, than, uh, you know, conventional dairy, the vitamin A and the carotenoids, vitamin E, like it, but it's a more fat friendly medium to absorb those nutrients in it. And something that got lost in the shuffle is just meat is a super nutritious food. (laughs) Like it's just, it's super nutritious, you know, but, um, almost the amazing thing is you throw just like ridiculous stuff into cows and herbivores, you know, like the leftovers of a wheat harvest and grass and stuff that has like virtually zero nutritional content. And due to the interaction of the microbiota within the cow and the whole cow's physiology, it it upcycles nutrients in this like stunning way. But I think that some of the producers have, have leaned on, oh, this stuff is healthier for you. And, and then that was kind of like a, almost felt like a, a, uh, a betrayal, you know, like we were writing this thing on regenerative agriculture. And, and, um, I tell you, Diana and I, I, we thought about just lying about this. I mean, the vegans do this all the time. Like they lie about it all the time. So why don't we just lie about this? What I didn't want to do is put anything in there into, we try to finish one thought and then I'll start another one. I didn't want anything in there so that a vegan doctor could go through and say, they claimed that pastured meat was more nutritious than conventional meat. And it's not. Mm -hmm. And you only need one of those things to then call into question every other thing that you have. And so we really did our damnedest to not do that. And there are zero vegan slam pieces on the book and film. Mm -hmm. They don't exist. And I think it's because we did such a buttoned up job on that, that they're like, we don't, they finally figured out, we don't even want to make noise about this because we don't want anybody to look at it because we, we made, I think a very compelling case for the whole book and we cited it and we walked people through and it's like, here's how you can figure this out. Look at this one. Look at this one. Here's their claims. Here's our claims. And we did a damn good job of that. And so it's telling that like even in our reviews, the vegans didn't show up on there and start like hammering it because that creates curiosity. It's right. like, why are all these five-star reviews? And then one one-star review, that's weird. So they've completely left it alone, but it's been so quiet from vegan land that the meat elitists have been rather loud on this, you know, and, and it was something that I really wish the world had played out differently in, in, in full disclosure, an animal that is on clover for a, a three months, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that that meat is going to be more nutrient dense than something that's in general grass fed. But right. general grass fed can be grass. It can be hay. It can be the leftovers of a wheat field. And so there's going to be a bunch of variability in that. And we're already in this like drawn out trench warfare battle to convince people that we can scale regenerative ag at all. But part of the scaling of regenerative ag is using it synergistically within standard agriculture, or at least, you you know, some type of row crop systems, like unless that goes away, then, uh, you know, 
to the degree that row crop systems will still exist, they will benefit from the application of animals in those systems. And so that's got to play a factor in this. And this is where um, we really have to focus on the ethical and the environmental upsides of pastured meat and then not demonize, you know, the, the, the nutritional story there and just relax into the, the reality that meat is arguably like meat, seafood, shellfish. Like you can, you can have a measuring contest over which one of those wins, I guess. But like, those are like the most nutrient dense foods right. we can eat. They're the most nutrient dense, the most absorbable nutrients. You know, it's like purslane looks cool, but I'm not too sure how much of it you're really getting. You know, maybe some people do, some people don't, but if you eat a big plate of oysters, I'm pretty sure you're getting all the zinc out of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, and I think that, you know, again, makes a lot of sense. I think it's, I know that in the kind of carnivore space, there's that, there's questions of, well, I can't afford pasture-raised meats. And so it's like elitism, right? And it's just start with just meat and then we can figure out, right? Because there is like stew meat that you can get that's pasture-raised. Yep. Like I just bought a quarter cow um, and it was $5 a pound and they're throwing in bones for free. They're throwing in uh, bone marrow and they're throwing in the oxtail, which is normally really yep. expensive, even conventional. And I was like, yes, please. And so it comes out to be super cheap for grass fed. So that argument doesn't always hold true. Now, sometimes I prefer the green fed taste of steaks and it's just, it's just balance. And I think we're also really splitting hairs in the community. It's just, we right. know that meat is so important. And if we just pay our dollars on meat rather than all the other stuff in the market, we're sharing what we really want. And I think that's the most important way to vote rather than splitting hairs again. Absolutely. And I think that this is, you know, maybe starting back to maybe the first thing that we talked about, this is where people start creating in versus out tribe, you know, where they have these uh, nearly biblical proclamations about what meat is and what it's not and what you should or shouldn't do versus, um, you know, I think a much more evidence-based and also a more reasonable proposition in this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, one question I forgot to ask you is, Based on all the things we're talking about censorship, you know, where are we're going with the pharma world, medical, our diets? I mean, where do you kind of see, you know, there's a lot of people that are scared, like, what does this pandemic mean, right? And should we be raising our own cows and feeding, you know, um, being self-sustainable? Like, what are your thoughts on, you know, are we just going to be eating? My biggest fear is that my kids are going to be only eating lab meat because that's all that's left. What right. are your thoughts on kind of our future and how do we protect our families? And that's a good, really good question. Uh, I mean, we founded the Healthy Rebellion because Google and Facebook basically made it impossible to find my work several oh, wow. years ago. Like we woke up one day and, and we lost 97, 98% of our site traffic. So everything wow. that we were selling, like the keto masterclass and different things, like it, it just disappeared. And so... I saw then, and this is three years ago now that that happened and it took us a year to build the healthy rebellion. Um, I knew that this kind of censorship thing was going to be a big deal. I've been warning against it for a long time. Um, I'm a little bit of a doomsday bunker kind of person. So like I, I, uh, I was not the least bit surprised when the 2008 financial crisis happened. Um, I, we always have extra food on hand. We're very fortunate. First, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to do all that type of stuff. But 
I usually have like, I have a 50 gallon drum of coconut oil, you know, and it's like, I will end up shitting like a goose if I'm exclusively eating coconut oil. But I tell you what, I, I, when I did my I caveman uh, uh, show for the reality or the discovery channel, I didn't eat anything for 10 days and I would have loved a scoop of coconut oil here and there, you know? So I've always had a little redundancy thinking around, um, food and water, um, energy access and stuff like that. So like, I really encourage people to do things that improve your quality of life today. Like having a garden today improves your quality of life. You and your family get to get out and you get to get outside and do different things. Maybe you do it in more of a community garden setting, but it also builds resiliency for if things get a little bit sideways, like, uh, the, the, as, as bad as COVID was, the SARS-CoV-1 virus um, had a, at least a 15% fatality rate. People still bicker over what the, the real fatality rate is of, of COVID, but it looks like it may be two or three times worse a, a standard flu, like at, at worst, at absolute worst, which makes the, the first virus, you know, the first SARS virus worse. two orders of magnitude worse. And we had food distribution challenges and, and like, you know, slaughterhouses were shut down and, and distribution hubs were uh, really dramatically affected. And if this had been 10 times worse, we would have been in, in rather dire straits. And so this is part of the reason why I've, we first made a move to Texas, but we didn't, uh, uh, we felt too far away from family, but like it was a resiliency play. We wanted somewhere that if I needed to hunt and fish and, and, you know, store food and all that stuff that I, I could do it. And more recently we moved to Montana. I know not everybody can do that, but it, it, there's so much that people can do to create greater resilience for themselves. Most people don't have a week's worth of food on hand. And this is where, idealism kind of has to go a little bit out the window. Like maybe you got some freeze dried packages of, of rice and beans that are pre-cooked and stuff like that. But you know, when, if that's the only meal you're eating and you're eating 900 calories a day, your body's going to do fine with it. It's not, it's not going to be, it's not going to be the poison that it is when you're overeating. But um, those are things that I do. And I try to, the balance that I strike with it is, is this, activity enriching my life today? And would it also be a hedge against some sort of a catastrophic event? And if it kind of hits both those, then I, I end up doing that. Um, on a larger scale, I'm, I'm really honestly concerned. Like uh, you brought up the question, like, will your kids only be eating lab meat? Um, I'm wondering what type of legitimate access to free information my kids will have. Like if we extrapolate this timeline forward, um, you know, is it going to be something like a social credit score where because you and I advocate for a low-carb diet and meat-based eating, um, we don't get to get on a plane. We don't get to have a, a website because we're social outcasts, because we're advocating for things that are unhealthy and are prove, you know, proven to damage the planet. Right. And people kind of make fun of that stuff, but like I've been warning people about things like this for close to 10 years and everybody is so mainly focused on getting abs and skinny jeans that you can barely get them excited about the fact that this way of eating can save people's lives that are really sick. And then you throw in this other sociopolitical layer to this, that it's like 
hey, our freedoms are going away. And I, I'll just circle back to like that Weston A. Price thing again. Um, I really appreciate them for what they talk about on the, the like food and nutrient density side. They have given me endless heartache over um, some of their vaccine topics, suggesting that 5G is, is giving you, going to grow five arms out of your head. They, they had a, an article that said that 5G was causing the transmission of covid and, and they, they make me crazy. And I am heartbroken that they are gone. You know, that is not the right way to do it. Right. Did they produce material that I, I, I think is wrong and even potentially hurtful to people? Yes. And then it's my job to counter that. It's my job to make the better argument and to, to put the evidence out in front of people so that they can understand maybe what they're saying is inaccurate and, and here it is. And will I change everybody's mind? No, but um, I'm way more comfortable with that world than I am in the world where they're gone now, you yeah. know, and, and it, it's a, uh, people get cocksure where they're like, well, those are just crazy people. But again, Everybody's got some crazy thought in their head. There's some line in their like social political Venn diagrams that will get you in trouble. And, and uh, then maybe your employment status is questionable or, you know, I mean, a whole host of things. If we've seen this play out other places in the world. So like, why, why would we be the least bit surprised that it couldn't happen here and not to get too far out on like kind of a, a political plank, but um, what we've experienced in the last 200 years, kind of like in this Western liberal democratic scene, it is singularly unique in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. It has never existed before. And there is absolutely nothing to guarantee that it, it exists going forward. Nothing. Totalitarianism has been the rule throughout human history. Like once we abandoned the hunter-gatherer life way and we, you know, we could just kind of go and do as we please within small family groups, a, a centralized totalitarianism has been the, the rule. And this, this little experiment of Western liberal democracies is a completely unique novel entity and it is uh, incredibly exposed to, to being destroyed or, or being manipulated and changed in a way where it's not really what it was. And so I'm, I'm really concerned about that stuff and we'll probably both be canceled for even talking about it. So yeah, I, if you want to delete this part, by all means do it. You could rewind the tape and stop it. Like a uh, Holy smokes. Uh, people eat a pound of liver a day. So yeah. <laughs> No, it's funny. Um, I first came into this space because I was plant-based for 12 years and then carnivore helped me with my eating disorder, with my mental health. I had major depression, postpartum depression. And then I saw the light. I was really mad. And I was like, I can share my content and help other people not suffer because I went into those eating disorder facilities and it's all about moderation and eating crap foods and being able to be okay with that. And then as you, you know, once you realize, oh, everything I know about nutrition is wrong, it starts to make you think, oh, outside of the box. Right. And then you start questioning a lot of things. And then you start wondering, Oh, did you know that Rockefeller is actually was the founder of all this new modern, you know, pharma and all that, but we know him as the oil mogul from our history books. Right. And so I just want people to heal one. And then when you heal, it's easier to see some more of the writing on the wall. Right. right? And that's where I tell people, like we have a chest freezer because I used to store breast milk in there. And now we have a full 
amount of meat in there because I don't, we don't need to eat a ton of other foods. And so for now, while the prices are still low, we'll buy our meats, but we'll save that amount. And we're trying to do the things that just in case, right? Because we're fat fueled, if we, we can go a day or two without food and be fine, we're not having the hypoglycemic responses. So in a bigger picture, it makes more sense to no longer be kind of plugged into standard American foods and just, and then the whole fear mongering, right? So totally on the same page. Um, Yeah, I think it's really important to just talk about these things because when I was becoming a nutritional therapist, I thought I'm just going to get my kids healthy. And then I realized if my kids are the only ones that that are healthy and all their schoolmates are eating crap foods, who are they going to marry? Right. Right. And then it's like, it doesn't end with my family. It needs to go beyond that because then my kids are going to be the weird ones when they're eating healthy. And so that's when I was like, I'm going to share this so that I hope my kids find wives in the future. And it's normal to eat meat heavy or lots of proteins. And then if you want to add plants, fine. So that then my grandchildren can be healthy. Right. And that was, I mean, my selfish desire to share because otherwise, it's the the future seems very bleak especially if we focus on gmos and all that and it's like where's our soil i mean this is part of the reason i feel that our foods are lacking minerals and now we need a supplement right we are overly um filtering our waters and that's why i think when we drink our waters it pulls the minerals from our body so thank god for electrolytes right i mean otherwise we would really be in a lot of trouble and so yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing. I hold a lot of the same viewpoints, so. though. I, I super appreciate that, and I'm very, very grateful. I love your work, and I've been a fan of it for a, for a long time. And it, it's, um, it, I don't want to make this as a poor me, but it's a bit of a slog to sell this stuff absent the, um, it's only abs and it's only skinny jeans. Like, it, and oh, yeah. to some degree... I think all of us in the scene kind of have to cater to that a little bit because it's almost like the gateway drug. It's like, oh yeah, we'll get you, we'll get you thin. You'll look good. And then it's like, oh, by the way, all those GI problems you've had and like the neurological issues you've had, we'll, we'll, we'll address that too. Um, but I, I, I look at all of this kind of like, uh, what do they say when you're on the airplane? Like if the cabin depressurizes, put on your, your own mask before helping right. someone else. And that, that, that someone else is when we start asking these questions. Historically, I've, I've reserved that just for the regenerative ag scene. Like we need to think about this at a, a bigger, right. bigger level, but it's uh, regenerative ag now is kind of taken a second a backseat to um, this greater censorship topic. Because yeah. if we can't just have a discussion, if we can't compare ideas and do it both in a, a, this is my lived experience way, but also in an evidence-based way, we're done. Like society has ceased to evolve and, and we will just be stuck with whatever it is that is the dominant paradigm there because this dominant paradigm is extractive. It, it extracts our information to use against us via social media. It's extractive in the way that it produces food on land that is losing its topsoil and on and on and on. It is not regenerative at any level. So, and it's not that sexy, but it is the fight that we need to fight, you know? And I mean, sometimes it is just getting people healthy by saying, Hey, you can fit into skinny jeans by eating a meat based or, you know, ancestral diet, but 
once you're in there, you see a lot more. And you know what? I think vegans do the same because when I became plant-based, it was just do this detox. And then as I read about it, it was the doctor was saying that animal foods putrefy in your system. And that made sense to me, right? Like it takes longer to digest protein. And so, oh my gosh, like it's no wonder my gut health's messed up. And then, so I went total plant-based and then as you become plant-based, then they, you know, share all of this information about all of the and, and you buy into it and you, and then there's this like crown of, I am a good person. <laughs> I'm taking care right. of the environment and animals. And you watch these sap stories that are so false. Um, but then your health declines and you have to wonder, you know, we think of do good to others or no harm, but what about the harm you're doing to yourself and then your family and your offspring, right? right. Um, thank right. God my kids are healthy, but I was plant-based when I had them and, I mean, and now I'm meat-based and I'm still nursing my five-year-old and that is the power of meat, right? So right. yeah, it's uh, just get them in the door, however, but it's, um, and then it's just, I think when people start realizing, oh, maybe my doctor is just pushing pills and not really trying to help me, then maybe they can see other things going on and then start being more sustainable and, you know, pre- prepare for the future, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I super appreciate people like you doing this. Like it, it is, uh, uh, I wouldn't say thankless, but it's not the easiest way to, to go about doing this totally. stuff for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I knew I would have a lot of trouble with sharing the liver thing, but I knew it was the right thing to do. Um, it doesn't affect everybody, but it affects some. And so for that, I think being a person in this space, I think it makes sense to share. I mean, I used to share liver pâtés and a bunch of other like you can eat as much and it's healthy for you. And um, I don't think that, but I think we should share because ultimately we're just trying to help people. Right. So, right. So, well, thank you so much for this discussion. It's been, um, you know, very encouraging. I think it's sometimes hard to be in the public space and do what's right, but then you see like other people do things maybe that's more popular, but um, it's nice to know there's other people with similar mindsets. So thank you. Absolutely. I had a ton of fun. Thank you. Okay. So, um, where can people find your book, um, your element T, um, you know, where can people find, and even your, um, the healthy rebellion. Yeah. So, uh, join rebellion.com. That's our online community. We have a podcast that my wife and I do weekly called the healthy rebellion radio. Um, most all of this you can find at robwolf.com, at least links to it. And then, uh, drink, element.com for the electrolyte and then sacredcow.info is the the website for sacred cow the book and the film and there's so much amazing material there um diana rogers is just one of the most amazing people i've ever met and she was an artist first a scientist second and so she's able to take all of this complex information and she's created just innumerable graphics that help people to understand these complex topics. And when we're faced with trying to share this information and not sound like a crazy person, you know, it's like, does, does it take like 6,800 bathtubs of water to make a, a a hamburger? It's like, well, no, Um, yes and no. And here's, here's the real details behind that. Yeah. And she's generated all that at sacredcow.info. Yeah. And I'll put everything, all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on again. 
Thanks. Take care. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this interview. You know, I have a lot of respect for Rob Wolf. And after this interview, I have a lot more respect for Rob Wolf. He's just so real, so honest and genuine. And, um, you know, I know I've always been more of an advocate of the Soleil Waters and doing that. And I still think I am in on a day-to-day basis at home. Make sure to check out his books, his podcasts, a lot of his programs, and just a lot of his helpful information. I will link to everything in the show notes. Um, Thank you again for listening and watching. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a review and leave comments so that I know how this helped you. All right, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.